If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14. So this is the um, second of our introductory looks at um, the topic of worship. And um, starting next week, we'll get uh, maybe more in, in depth on the particular elements of our worship, starting with the uh, call to worship. Um, but uh, consider this kind of part two of the introduction to the series. So um, I think it's pretty common these days to church shop. Heard that phrase. Uh, basically, adults that are um, Either, either by themselves or taking their family around to different churches looking for a congregation to land in. And um, there's a lot of reasons why that takes place. You know, maybe, maybe it's because of relocation. You moved and you're in a new community and you want to be um, in a church there. Or uh, maybe you've uh, grown increasingly dissatisfied with some particular aspect that you just can't bear anymore. And um, so you, you're looking for a, a church to go to. Or maybe... Um, Maybe you're becoming a Christian, you're exploring Christianity, or you've recently become a Christian, you're convinced that, yeah, I guess I'm supposed to go to church all the time, better find one, and um, actually I've, I've church shopped for each of those reasons, um, and those, those kind of things are made easier by the fact that we live in a, a commuter society where it's no big deal to drive even up to an hour to uh, go to a church that uh, meets your standards. Um, I wonder, though, how many of us who have engaged in this as adults have had uh, very well-defined criteria for what it is that we're looking for in churches that we want to belong to. When we visit churches, um, what, what questions are we asking of ourselves? You know, are we asking questions like, is the gospel clearly presented here? Um, are there opportunities for my growth as a disciple here? Are there opportunities for, um, for me to engage in service and, and ministry to use my gifts here? Uh, does this congregation express the love of Christ in community? Um, is the worship service tolerable? <laughs> right? um, those are some of the, the more decent questions you could ask. I won't get into all the terrible questions that people commonly ask when they're uh, looking for a church to go to, but I think at some point, hopefully, hopefully you've let the Bible speak into that situation and maybe ask what sort of things that God likes to see in the church, right? And um, we are asking that question around here, especially when it comes to this particular series on worship. That's not to say that we do anything better than other churches, uh, not at all, right? Just simply that we want to acknowledge that God is the one who should tell us uh, what the church should be about, what worship should look like, um, those kinds of things. So I think um, among those who want to let the Bible shape their criteria, um, you, you frequently hear two kinds of things expressed when they're looking for a church, at least I think in our modern culture. Maybe they started off um, in a church. You get people who have a sense of a lack of transcendence in worship. These people might say that their church has become something just of a social club, right? And that God has been reduced to uh, just another buddy that we hang with. And um, they might say that they want to be in a place where they meet with God. 
where God is clearly presented and where he's revered and exalted and glorified for who he is and for what he's done for us in the gospel. They're missing this vertical focus, this divine focus, and they're looking for that. The other um, common, I think, category of church shopper who's trying to let the Bible uh, speak into that situation is is people who lack a sense of uh, true community in the church, right? These might complain that their church has become a little bit too bookish, that uh, their doctrine seems a bit stale, maybe a bit disconnected from real life. It's not promoting the kind of relationships they're looking for. They might say they want it to be a place where relationships matter, where what we believe makes more of a difference in our community together um, through hospitality and fellowship and service and things like that. And these people are missing the horizontal connection, right? Um, and they're looking for that. So, so which of those, the vertical focus or that horizontal aspect, should we be looking for in a church? Which of those should we be seeking to cultivate in our church? Which of those should be shaping the way that we do worship here on Sunday mornings? And uh, the answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> right? Um, if your God is triune, tri-personal, then uh, the vertical focus and the horizontal dimension of worship gatherings are not at all mutually exclusive. They're actually mutually necessary. So um, let me pray and we'll read the scripture and uh, I'll tell you what I mean. I'm actually going to start in um, 1 Corinthians 13, the last verse of that chapter, and go through chapter 14, verse 33. So let's pray and then we'll read the text. Father, we thank you for your word. We uh, confess that our hearts are naturally set against receiving your word. We pray that you would overcome our resistance, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, give us hearts to believe. Help us to be shaped by your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation of, or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, 
since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a bit of a long passage there, but um, before we get into it, let me give a brief recap of what we talked about last week. Um, and I think that there's a great summary quote in the beginning of the bulletin there from James Torrance, uh, where he says that worship is the gift of participation through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. Right, so the, the way that we unpacked um, Jesus' words that we need to worship in spirit and truth last week were that um, we need to worship according to God's revelation. God has disclosed to us how he is to be worshipped. He's disclosed to us who he is as a, a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that that, uh, that should shape our worship. The Trinitarian nature of God should shape the way that we commune with God. And then also, <clears throat> also that he um, has provided a way into that relationship through the incarnation of his Son. And so worship ought, ought to be Christ-centered and cross-centered, uh, focused on him as the means uh, by, by whom uh, we enter into um, worship and communion with God. So um, that's going to shape what we're talking about this morning. And again, uh, this morning, as we look at our passage, it's a huge passage, we won't cover everything, uh, important things like speaking in tongues and prophesying, um, 
even though those seem to be kind of central to the passage, we're actually, um, they might not be as central as you think, but we're not going to look uh, at, at those things. Uh, we're going to focus on how Paul expects us to consider each other as we gather for worship. Uh, this section of 1 Corinthians, not just this chapter, but you know, kind of starting in chapter 10, maybe chapter 11, um, it might be the only time that the New Testament directly addresses for any kind of um, extended period of time with interior details the, um, the consideration of the Christian worship service. Um, here it is that, uh, that the worship service, the gathering together of God's people for worship, is discussed uh, in depth over the course of several chapters in, in this section of 1 Corinthians, and it also happens to be one of the best resources that we have in the New Testament for how we should think about edification, building one another up, and evangelism, seeing people come to faith as purposes for the gathering of the church. Right. So um, these are important implications. Considering edification and evangelism during worship are important implications of what we discussed last week regarding the Trinitarian nature of worship and the Christocentric focus of worship, that what we do because God, um, we, that we do what we do because God is triune, because he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and because he's reached out to us and saved us in, in the incarnate Son. It has these implications for the way that we consider each other in our worship. And that that's, goes like this, God is love. God is a being in communion. And he invites us into that communion, the very communion of the eternal divine trinity. And he made that communion possible by sending his son in the flesh to atone for our sins, to win our hearts and our minds to God. So God is love. And God loves us. He went out of his way to love us. It's kind of the understatement of history, right? God went out of his way to love us. So it's a pretty big deal then that love would shape us as his people, especially as we gather together um, as a community of the faith, the people of God for corporate worship. Right? So Paul has just spent a chapter famously addressing love, right? First Corinthians 13, uh, that you've heard at uh, most wedding uh, services. Um, he's, he's spent a chapter addressing love, and he commands us then at the beginning of this chapter pursue love. Pursue love. That is, we are to make loving one another our pursuit, our goal. And then he goes on to apply that in the worship service over the course of chapter 14. Uh, one facet of love that he had highlighted in the previous chapter, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, it says, love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. So we don't come to worship simply have a pleasant time for ourselves, right? just to remain anonymous maybe, just to get, right? We come to worship to engage and to give also relationally, right? And a lot of that, uh, a lot of times that, that means giving up our way rather than insisting on it because that's what love does. Right? The one who loves like God loves is willing to give up demanding his rights, demanding his preferences, demanding his comforts and pleasures for the good of others. Right? And so that goes straight against the, um, the entire mentality of our culture, the, 
individualism that is uh, not just rampant in our culture, it's characteristic of the world apart from God, right? Self-centeredness. It's, it's, um, it goes straight against self-centeredness. It goes straight against individualism and consumerism that is, I think, especially highlighted in um, modern American Christianity. Um, to give up our rights, to not insist on getting our own way when it comes to worship. Isn't worship, after all, about my experience with God? My spiritual connection during communion, what, what I got out of the sermon, whether that music really ministered to me. Uh, if worship were ultimately about that, Paul would not have written this chapter. Because he says clearly at the beginning, if you speak in tongues, you're speaking to God. That doesn't build up the church. You need to build up the church. If you're speaking in tongues, you're building up yourself. But that doesn't build up the church. You need to do that. In effect, he's saying, hey, I'm really glad you're speaking in tongues. You're having a great ex- uh, experience, a spiritual experience for yourself. But hey, why don't you try loving others and speaking in ways that mean something to them during worship? Uh, he says in verses 3 and 4, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So David Peterson says in his book, uh, Engaging with God, says that self-edification falls short of the primary goal of the Christian assembly. Self-edification is not the primary goal. It falls short of the primary goal of the Christian assembly. So we don't come to Sunday worship primarily for ourselves. We don't come to Sunday worship primarily for ourselves. We come to meet with the triune God, to, to commune with him, to respond to him. And the corporate nature of our gathering reflects his nature and his will for our gathering better than just my individually benefiting from the service. We are primarily here, not for ourselves, but for each other. Because God is for the other in his very being because God is love, because God is a trinity. So love then should compel us to consider one another throughout worship. Love should characterize everything that we do in worship. There's a a longish quote from John Frame at the beginning of the bulletin I'll read. says that... um, Christian worship is vertical, directed to our triune God for his pleasure. The focus of our effort in worship should be on pleasing him. From this principle, some might conclude that we should not pay any attention to human needs in worship. A talk like that can sound very pious, but it is unbiblical. The God of the Bible is not like the false god Moloch, who demanded human sacrifice from his worshipers. Moloch is a selfish God because he's only one person. Our God is three persons living in love and self-giving, right? So he doesn't demand human sacrifice from his worshipers like Moloch does. Rather, our triune God wants to bless his people when they meet with him. There is no opposition between worshiping God and loving people. So worship has a horizontal dimension as well as a vertical focus. It is to be God-centered, 
but it is also to be both edifying and evangelistic. Worship that is unedifying or unevangelistic may not properly claim to be God-centered. You might think you're God-centered if all you're focusing on is God to the neglect of your neighbors. That's not God-centeredness. Not when your God is a trinity. So Paul, being supremely God-centered, who has ever lived besides Jesus... <laughs> that we would consider, consider to be more God-centered than the Apostle Paul. He spends most of this chapter on public worship, talking about how we can build one another up when we're together, which happens to be God's greatest concern, God's greatest goal for the church. It says in uh, chapter 14, verse 12, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, these people were eager you know, for things like speaking in tongues. Wow, that's exciting, you know. Um, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. You want to know how God's Spirit manifests Himself, manifests His work? It's in the building up of the church. And again, there's some deeply theological reasoning behind this. Um, Sorry to geek out on this stuff, but it's interesting to me. You remember that it's through the Spirit through the Spirit, that we're given a participation in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. Right? By God's grace, we are granted to enter into the very position of the Son in the relationships of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're granted the very position and all the benefits of the Son in those relationships. We're the body of Christ. We're the body of the Son as he communes with the Father in the Spirit. And as the Son is also sent by the Father into the world to do the work of revealing God for worship, so also we stand in the Son's position with regard to the world. We're the body of Christ. We're here to continue Jesus' own mission of making disciples of all the nations. That's his great commission that he's given to us. That was his mission on earth, and that's his mission now through us, through his church. And I'll read just a a little bit of what he prayed for in John 17. This is Jesus' prayer. I ask for those who will believe in me through their word, through the disciples' word, the apostles' word. So he's asking for us. He's praying for us who believe in the apostles' word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So Jesus' prayer for his church is that we would find unity in the Spirit, that the Spirit would connect us to the Father and the Son in such a way that the whole world would know about Jesus. Because Jesus discloses himself through the church because we stand in his place by the Spirit. We make disciples in his name through 
edification and evangelism, right? Through building up other Christians and seeing people come to faith who weren't Christians before, right? And Paul speaks in those terms here in our passage. Edification, the building up of the church, other Christians, evangelism, the new introduction of uh, converts to the church. And in a sense, both of these boil down to discipleship, edification, right? Building other people up. Um, And that's what the Spirit is working through the church to accomplish in the world, to win worshipers for the Father. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that the, uh, the church is the temple of God and God's Spirit dwells in us. Christ himself, the God-man, is the ultimate temple. He's the nexus between heaven and earth, right? The place where the divine and the human meet, and we together as his body, then, are the continuing temple, the continuing nexus between heaven and earth. We're meant to be the place where humanity encounters God, and that's, that's us together. We're the temple together. And that's the Spirit's primary work in the church is to connect people to God the Father through Jesus Christ. So we want to give attention to to edification and evangelism, which actually are both simply expressions of love for others who are present. And when Paul talks about this expression of love in, in our chapter, he focuses primarily on communication. Communication, the intelligibility of what we say in worship. For example, in verse 16, he says that we need to be able to say amen together in agreement, which necessitates the fact that we all understand what we're agreeing to, right? That's why the church has had this practice of when we have our prayers and we say amen at the end, it's not just the leader who says amen. All of us are agreeing together. We say amen. We give our agreement to that prayer together. Um, And you can only do that if you understand what it is you're agreeing to, right? He says that if we're to build one another up in love, we need to use language that we can all understand. If we're to edify each other, we have to speak in a language that everybody can understand. If we want to see unbelievers and outsiders convicted and drawn to worship God, we need to use language that we can all understand. And that makes sense, doesn't it? It makes total sense when your God is a God of communication, when God is a trinity, when God is so concerned with communication that he takes on human flesh in order to reveal himself for our faith, for relationship with us. And it makes total sense that we'd, we'd want to use language in a way that everybody can understand. As Paul says, if you encounter someone who doesn't speak your language, that's not just, it doesn't just kind of leave you in a neutral place. It actually creates barriers. Don't you feel some kind of estrangement from somebody when you don't understand the language that they're speaking or when they don't understand you? It creates real barriers and real estrangement. He says, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. But God is a God who moves outward toward others, who looks to overcome all barriers in relationship, who takes foreigners and brings them into his own household, right? who therefore communicates in a way that we can understand. And so, we've been recipients of that, his movement toward us, his communication toward us through his word, through Christ. So we should imitate him and seek to communicate with each other in ways that promote unity, that promote our growth together as a church. 
And Tim Keller says as <clears throat> that there's an implication of this passage. Um, says that non-believers are expected in gathered worship. Non-believers should find worship comprehensible, and non-believers may be convicted and converted through corporate worship. So Ed Clowney calls this dynamic in worship doxological evangelism. Uh, doxological, we, we sing the doxology, praise God, right? So doxa is Greek for glory. So it's, it's when we're glorifying God and that spills out into evangelism, doxological evangelism. We need to realize that when our joy, when our peace, when our praise, when our unity, when our accord are visible and intelligible, that is attractive to unbelievers. Right? It's convicting to unbelievers. We serve as a light to the world when we worship before the world. And the, the reformers captured this, <clears throat> this need for intelligibility in worship, when they revised the then current practice of uh, conducting worship services in Latin, which few people understood at the time, and few people still understand Latin. Um, but they began to conduct services in the vernacular, the vulgar language, the common tongue. so that people could understand what was being said during worship. We need to update our application of this principle, I think, because it is quite possible to speak English to other English speakers in ways that are entirely unintelligible. Right? Just ask the, the poor, confused children who are sitting next to you, <laughs> who probably rarely get anything out of my sermons. <laughs> I apologize for that. In many ways, our culture, our entire culture, is, is so post-Christian, so unfamiliar with the scriptures, biblically illiterate, and doesn't retain any kind of theological vocabulary that, that we need to pay attention to the way that we speak in church, all of us, right? I'm not just talking about defining terms like justification and sanctification. Hopefully we do that. I'm talking about we need to define terms like sin and faith. Maybe because they're single-syllable words, we think we have them down in our culture, but we don't understand these things in our culture. We need to define all of our terms. We need to work hard, actually, to accommodate ourselves to the understanding of those who hear us who maybe didn't grow up in Reformed Presbyterian churches and have master's degrees under their belts, right? We need to work harder to make worship more accessible to our own children. Half, half the people here might not get as much out of worship as we think they should. Right? Well, we need to do that if love is important anyway. Right? And we do think it is important. <clears throat> so one of the uh, larger applications that we're going to make out of this sermon series, and I think it's particularly appropriate to introduce it now, is that we're going to maybe have a, a worship committee start sometime over the next few months. The worship committee will discuss all sorts of things, make practical arrangements for hospitality, for the way that the worship service is run, et cetera, but um, volunteers and whatnot. Uh, but some of the things we need to talk about are, how do we make this more accessible for our children? How do we make this a more inviting place for those who might come um, who are not Christians yet? Right? 
Those kind of questions and more will be discussed by this worship committee. Look for more specific announcements on the development of that later. But if love is important, we need to do things like that. Where we're all engaged, this worship committee is an idea to engage more of us in the work of getting even more of us engaged and participating and, and edified in worship. So, yeah, it's, it's possible to go overboard here. Um, you know, being a seeker-sensitive church is a kind of bad connotation associated with that. And um, <clears throat> Tim Keller says that if a service aims at very, uh, very strictly at being only evangelistic, well, the Christians will not have their hearts engaged in worship. And the main power of doxological evangelism is lost. Non-Christians will not see a people formed and sustained by glorious praise. So if the Sunday service aims primarily at evangelism, it will bore the saints. If it aims primarily at education, it will confuse unbelievers. But if it aims at praising the God who saves by grace, it will both instruct insiders and challenge outsiders. So if we're truly praising the God who saves by grace, the triune God who sends his son into the world to save us by grace, then we'll praise him in a way that takes others into consideration for, for the sake of their being built up in love. Right? And that's just an application, actually, of what Paul says in another place. Ephesians 4 says, Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Right? So we do that by speaking the truth in love with one another. Speaking the truth in love doesn't just mean you've got to say the hard things when it's necessary because Joe's really care. Right? It means that, you should, that, that love should drive the way that you speak the truth when you say anything to anyone at any time, and that especially includes when we're gathered together in the name of truth, in the name of love, for worship of the God who is truth, who is love. So, um, so let's make some applications, some more applications here for our worship. First, again, said this last week, go to church, <laughs> right? Go to church. Uh, let me tell you, you will benefit by being engaged in weekly worship, but you need to go to the church for the sake of other people. All right. We're all encouraged by your presence, as you should be encouraged by ours, because our gathering is a testimony to the grace of God that's at work in us by his spirit. Right. Our gathering is a testimony to God's grace, and that's encouraging to all of us. Second, participate. Right? We've made... Um, every element of our worship a chance for all of us to participate, to communicate with God and with one another. Um, maybe the exception to this is the 30 seconds where we are in silent confession together, right? Otherwise, um, everything that we do is, is corporate. Everything that we do is um, calling for your participation. Um, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. 
Let all things be done for building up. So every aspect of our worship is to be corporate and the, and the tenor of the whole service is to be edifying. So when you sing, you don't just sing to God. Right? You sing to your neighbor about God, which is what God expressly wants. It says in Psalm 105, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. And Ephesians 5 says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So we're not just singing to God. We're also singing for the benefit of others, which is actually one reason for the PowerPoint, right? Um, Congregational singing improved instantly when it became more of a corporate focus in lifting the heads up um, rather than sticking the head down, which is closing ourselves off from each other, right? Um, And that's encouraging to people. You notice when the volume went up, I think everybody felt good about it, right? So build one another up by sharing the word with each other, which we do through singing, but we also do it when you proclaim Christ's peace to each other. And you do that over coffee, immediately following the the formal part of our service. Because word-centered fellowship is absolutely a part of our gathering. It's a part of the Christian assembly, the part of our, our corporate worship. And I'm not the only one who is speaking the word in this place. Right? Um... Paul says in verse 31, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. So we're all supposed to work to build each other up in love and in the truth. It's even encouraging to know I'm not the only one who is broken, confessing sin, utterly dependent on God's forgiveness. When we come to that time of confession of sin, it is encouraging to know I'm not the only one, right? It strengthens me to know I'm not the only one that's confessing Jesus Christ and his work on behalf of sinners in the world. I'm not the only one making that profession of faith in this world. Instruction and encouragement of each other should be the goal of what we're doing here. Right? And again, Paul said in, in verse 1, uh, pursue love. Pursue love. There's so many ways that this can be expressed. How about be hospitable to one another? Learn the names of the people around you. Learn the names of the children. Right? If you're like me, you probably don't know half the names of the people in the congregation because uh, you didn't learn the children's names. Serve in the nursery. Relieve weary parents and enable them to be refreshed as they can uh, sit in the worship service. Right? Bring refreshments. Find ways to serve. Be friendly and inviting. Think of uh, ways to talk with folks without being off-putting. Please don't ask any visitors how long they've been reformed. In fact, um, maybe don't even assume that they go to church regularly. Maybe you're not even sure whether somebody is a visitor in our church. Maybe you should put some effort into finding that out. Maybe you should familiarize yourselves with the photo directories so that you can know who's a visitor in the church who needs an especially warm welcome, right? Pursue love, 
strive to be welcoming to, to one another. We're not here to condemn the world. We're not even here to harshly and meanly confront the world with the truth of the gospel or to foist our own preferences on the world or our own expectations on each other or on visitors. Consider your need of God's mercy right? and the fact that he gently instructs you. He makes you to be his friend. He reveals his covenant to you as we read in our Old Testament reading, Psalm 25, that covenant that was always intended to be outward facing, that covenant that was meant to bless all the families of the earth. He makes that known to you, right? And you need his mercy. Consider your need of his mercy, then seek to display that same mercy, that same acceptance and friendship to everyone in the pews around you. Seek to minimize or remove the barriers um, that exist to real Christian fellowship. And let me say, um, I've actually heard some very positive comments on your friendliness right? um, about the community here, about the fact that people, when they come and they visit, they don't feel condemned, actually. So um, some people have even mentioned the fact that they'd feel comfortable bringing their non-Christian friends here, people who struggle with sins that might get them uh, frowned upon in other churches. That's huge. Right? That is a strong testimony to the work of God's grace in your lives, which is absolutely central to our gathering for worship at all. Right? So let me uh, close with uh, the quote from Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity. The Spirit wins male and female, black and white, Jew and Gentile, all to the same uniting love of God which spills over into a heartfelt love of one another. He unites us to the Son so that together we cry, Abba, and begin to know each other truly as brothers and sisters. So it is not just that the Father, Son, and Spirit call us into fellowship with themselves. They share their heavenly harmony that there might be harmony on earth, that people of different genders, languages, Hobbies and gifts might be one in peace and love. So let's uh, consider one another in worship when we gather. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do delight in who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, the fact that we are caught up by your grace through the Son into your fellowship, the divine love and joy for eternity. We could not be happier to contemplate anything. Um, and we pray that you would let that delight in who you are and what you've done for us spill out into a heartfelt love for one another that, um, that gives up our own preferences, gives up our own rights, gives up our way, doesn't insist on our own way because, um, because we want to imitate you, you who are love, you who did not insist on your own way, but gave up your life for us all, Lord Christ. Let us imitate you in, in laying down our own preferences, even our own lives for each other. Help us to consider others as more important than ourselves when we meet for worship. Help us to serve one another. Help us to build one another up, to encourage and comfort one another, so that in all things you might be glorified as the one who has sent 
into this world to catch us up into eternal love. We pray this in your name and for your Father's sake. Amen.